Welcome to God's Word this morning. It's always good for us to go to Him and ask for His help. Let us pray together. O Lord, our God, we come to You and we are humbled by Your greatness, by Your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that You would be pleased to open our hearts and our minds, to unstop our ears and to give us eyes of faith that we might see this Jesus, the One who has come, to take away the sin of the world. Father, I pray that You would do this now, even through the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that they would be pleasing and keeping in Your sight, O God. For You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we come to our text this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me to Isaiah, the 11th chapter. I'll read uh, the text for us, and as you're turning there, Of course, we need to keep in mind the context in which we are sitting this morning. We've just celebrated Christmas and still are technically celebrating Christmas, at least as far as the historic church calendar is concerned. Christmas, you know, continues up until January the 6th, which is Epiphany. And that symbolically celebrates when the Magi would come to worship Christ in Bethlehem, sometime later than His actual birth. The question before us is, how do we hold on to Christmas even after all of our holiday festivities are come and gone? More accurately, we might say, what does the Bible teach us regarding the whole of the Christmas season? I think Isaiah 11 is a perfect exercise for this. The prophet gives us some of the most well-known Advent passages. We've read many for the last four Sundays. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or from Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But all of these look forward to the birth of Jesus. And so do our traditional celebrations. Many of you probably have an Advent calendar in your home. And if you're honest, you wait until the 25th to eat all of the candies out of it. Or you might be like me and sneak a few early. Most families exchange gifts on Christmas Day or maybe the night before. But you know, then we really just need a vacation to recover from all of the hustle and bustle, from all of the cooking and all of the eating and all of the hosting. But really, once Christmas is done... Christmas is just kind of done. We get kind of lazy and think, well, we can leave the tree up for an extra week. You know, we'll we'll get to that. The decorations, they can hold off. But really the celebrations are over and the mundane begins to creep back into our lives. So what are we to do then? How are we to keep the wonder of Christ, the newborn King? Well, this is where Isaiah 11 comes in. You see, the prophet being inspired by the Holy Spirit has a unique perspective on Christmas, on the hope and the joy surrounding this great event. He points us beyond the child. You know, cute little baby Jesus and swaddling claws in a manger. He points beyond Christmas so that we can truly understand who is this Lord of glory come to save us from our sin. I'll read. Now, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave His hand over the river with His scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Two hundred and fifty strands of light, one hundred bulbs on each strand for a grand total of 25,000 imported Italian twinkling lights. Or so says Clark Griswold. One of my favorite movies is Christmas Vacation, at least for the holidays, and I'll admit that unashamedly. And you know, I think for the whole movie, Clark Griswold wrestles with the tension of I need to fulfill my childhood desire to see the house lit up, to see it in the wonder of Christmas and twinkling lights. He wrestles with that tension over and against, I want to provide this same experience for my family. He's seeking this individual desire while at the same time trying to make Christmas special for those he loves. 
And if you've seen the movie, you know he's foiled at every turn, which makes it a great comedy. You know, I think that's what Isaiah is talking about as he begins in our passage. It's a, it's a tension between one person, one man, and the hopes and desires of an entire people. You notice he starts out, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I need to pause for a moment and consider this. I wonder why he uses Jesse. You know, the Old, the Old Testament practically on every page lifts up King David as the model Israelite. If it's not Moses, it's certainly King David as a type of Christ, as the king who looks forward to the king of kings. But why then does he talk about Jesse? Why is it a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse? I think Isaiah is highlighting that this is something that goes back through all of history. It's a longing not just of Israel. It's a longing not just of the house of David. It's a longing for all the peoples, for all the nations of the earth. It goes back not just from Jesus to David, not just from Jesus to David to Jesse, but all the way back to Adam. The hope of Adam even in the midst of thorns and thistles of the earth, shall spring forth the hope of this shoot. That's the hope of a people. That's what makes Christmas so special and so difficult at some times. It's the hope of our families. It's a collective and shared desire and longing. It's the hope that the Griswolds wrestled with in all of their comedic ways the thorny cousin Eddies and the pesky bosses of the world, all seeking the joy of Christmas. Do you notice something else? Isaiah begins, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Not from the forest, not from the garden, from the stump of Jesse. The picture there is a dry ground, a dead and lifeless tree that once was. Where does he pick this up? Well, again, context is helpful. If you look at the two verses immediately preceding our chapter, you see God's condemnation on the nation of Assyria. He would raise up Assyria to judge Israel for her sins, for her waywardness. But even in the midst of that judgment, you see promise, you see hope. He says, listen, Assyria will carry you off into captivity. You will be a people no more. You will have no national borders. You will have no glory in a king. You will be carried off. But Israel is but an instrument in my hand. He says they are haughty. But he says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God is pruning. He is whittling with His purifying power. He is bringing about judgment upon the nations for their sin, even to the point of chopping down to a stump. But even in that judgment, Isaiah picks up the theme of hope. There will come forth a shoot even from the deadness of this life. And I think it's important for us to understand that there is no hope except for this shoot. 
the world would prop up against all of the pain and suffering that we face, many things to help assuage the guilt and the loneliness and the brokenness. But there is no hope save for this little shoot that comes forth after everything has been laid waste, after mankind has no hope, as it were, after there is complete and utter deadness and desolations, we are carried off into the captivity of our sin and the fall and brokenness, then, then there will come forth the smallest glimmer of hope, a humble beginning in the manger of Bethlehem, the shoot of Jesse, the seed of that line of David, even Christ our Lord. And He will be a branch. From His roots shall bear fruit. Unlike anything else. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and mind and knowledge, and of the fear of our God. Only Jesus has the Spirit in this measure. Only He can bring about this righteousness, this fruit-giving life. Only the humblest of shoot will bring about the hope of all the world. But you see, it comes in the midst of judgment. It comes as the prophet is pronouncing a future destruction of Israel at the hands of Assyria. But beloved, take heart. He says, the shoot shall not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness is his belt. Faithfulness doth he gird his loins I think this kind of judgment is exactly what we see in Christmas vacation. Now Clark Griswold misplaces his trust a little bit. It's really an issue with how he ties into the main breaker. But what does every good light show person know? What's your demonstration is only as strong as that weakest bulb. Or at least back in 1989. There's many advances in technology now, but he meticulously goes over each and every bulb of every strand. And he asks the simple question, are you twinkling or are you not? That's the judgment of this righteous branch. And I think to really understand and get our minds around how promise and hope can come in the midst of judgment how the gospel can come in the midst of sheer desolation, we've got to understand what it means to be poor and meek. We've got to slow down and seriously consider how Christ comes, even at Christmas, to judge the world. When we look out at the world, we have Scripture telling us God is fair. God is just. There's so many poor and hurting people around us. There's so much pain and brokenness. Surely God must not exist in the face of all of this destruction. All of these things that seem so ridiculously out of hand, unfair. Surely the poorness of this world far outweighs the evidence and the proof for a good and just God. 
poor brothers and sisters is our idea and understanding of poor and justice off kilter. Isaiah comes forth with a standard of judgment that is much higher than material comforts, financial ease, good relationships. He comes forth and says, This shoot shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. Righteousness will be his waist. Faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's the Word of God. It's all a picture and an image of the Word of God being the standard by which we live and the standard by which we are judged. What then does poor mean? Well, God's Word doesn't leave us hanging. Matthew 5 tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The question you and I have to wrestle with this morning then, are we poor in spirit, Do we understand what it means to be impoverished in spirit? I'm not making an argument over and against helping the needy, helping the poor, meeting them when they are hungry or naked or in danger or in prison. Christ is clear. It's the imperative of the Christian life to go in love. They shall know we are Christians by our love. And that is a love in action. But you see, Isaiah's standard of justice and righteousness is much higher. His standard of holiness is the Lord of glory Himself. And he says, Assyria may be able to command the nations. They may be able to conquer the known world. They may be able to carry away entire people groups under their dominion, but they are but an instrument in God's hands. Their holiness is filth compared to the Lord Almighty. So what does that mean for us? It means you and I are poor in spirit. We have no righteousness of our own to bring. We have no innate goodness. We are the stumps deserving to be cut down to the very core, to deadness itself. We are the ones that should have condemnation brought upon us. We are without hope except for this tiny little shoot. The real issue is not those who are cold and hurting at this time of year to whom we try to do our best and extend aid and relief and love. The real issue is a matter of your heart. The real issue is a matter of your self-worth in your eyes and in the eyes of God Almighty. Calvin says the poor here are those who recognize their absolute poverty before God and His holiness. He writes that it is to those who humbled by a conviction of their poverty have laid aside those proud and lofty dispositions which commonly swell the minds of all men till they have learned to be meek through the subduing influence of the Word of God. He therefore declares that He will be the protector and guardian, not of all men whatsoever, but of those who know that they are poor and destitute of everything good. The poor alone allow themselves to be governed 
by Jesus. That's what we see. The word of His lips strikes the earth. The gospel, before it brings any promise or hope, brings condemnation upon all men. Scripture is so abundantly clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. Then you get this beautiful picture of hope. This almost idyllic scene where he says, Wolf shall dwell with lamb. Children shall play by the side of a cobra. I don't know about you, but that's ludicrous to me. I hate snakes. I think they have no place in the kingdom of God. I would not be ashamed if they weren't in heaven. I'd be completely fine with that. But think about this. To let a toddler, one who is still nursing, play with a snake much less a cobra. It's foolishness. And the starkness of this reality should strike us. I don't know about you, but to my knowledge, lions are still devouring antelope and all manner of calves and fattened animals. Cobras will still kill you if I'm correct. What does this mean? Although the battle is won, the victory is not over. The victory is not over. Christ still has work to do in this world. Otherwise, I guess we'd all be vegetarians. I'm not promoting that as a way of life necessarily, but they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the water covers the sea. I want you to notice something with me. Look at verse 10. Very subtle word change that I think is wonderful. Isaiah goes from verse 1 saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse to saying in verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse. You get the imagery there? Something that has gone from being a very young possibility of life, something that has the potential to bear fruit, grows and advances to the point of being the root of all life, the root of all godliness, the root of any fruit that anyone has ever borne comes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. The nation shall inquire and His resting place will be glory His resting place is the church. His resting place is His redeemed people. We are to be held up as the banner of Christ to a world broken and dying. As the only hope of the nations, they are to come and to inquire of us, how do you have hope in the midst of all of this judgment and despair? It's because the root of Jesse has taken hold of our life. It says, in that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people. I've been thinking about this a lot as we bring Christmas to a close, so to speak, and wonder how we hold on to Christmas and thinking about 
our traditions around Christmas Day and those that follow after it. And you know, what strikes me about Christmas vacation is he spends so much time getting the lights to work. It's almost as if as soon as they come on in all of their glory, they either have to come down because the season is over or he just about blows up the house in the process. They're good but for a moment. And I'm not dissuading you from having a wonderful light display each year. It's a great way to instill the joy of Christmas. But beloved, I think Christmas lights belong in their boxes. They're to spend most of the year in a dusty, dark attic or basement. They're to get tangled and entwined and remind us of the mundane because when they come out in their glory, we have got to remember they're but a glimpse and a reflection of the light that has come into the world. We're never to be satisfied with the lights that are on our house. Instead, we're to seek to be the lights in the world. We're to seek to have Christ dwell in us so richly that His Gospel pours forth from our lives. That's why the shoot grows and turns into a root that takes hold of us, that commands us, that makes us captive. But we've got to remember that we're a remnant. Christ came. He's accomplished salvation, but His work is not done. The world is still hurting. There are people still walking in darkness. They need the Word of God. They don't need your sales pitch. They don't need your self-help programs. They don't need our kind, polite southern phrases. They need the Word of God. They need the hope of the nations. They need the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else in their life, whether they know it or not. And we, we are called to take them this hope. Now, Christmas is a bittersweet time. It's wonderful. The twinkling lights, lots of food, some presents here and there if you're lucky. But it's also dastardly painful. It's destructive as it brings memories of those who have died this year. The relationships that are estranged and broken. Your wayward children. Your wayward friends. Those who don't know the light of Christ. How could we possibly bear up under the weight of this? This brokenness. This devastated forest. I think there's a simple point of application this morning. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that He is who He says He is? Do you believe that He's the righteous root of Jesse, able to gather together the scattered remnant of God's people? It's such a beautiful picture. The second half of our passage is a second exodus 
from the four corners of the earth, not from one nation, but from all nations. God shall bring any destructive way, any barrier to naught so that people can walk as on a highway. They can walk in sandals to the Lord of glory. Christ makes straight the path that once was crooked. He brings every mountain low. Every valley is made level in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that He is who He says He is? The next question is, is Jesus your Lord? Not your parents, not your children, not your neighbor, not your preacher. Is He your Lord? Have you repented of your goodness? Have you recognized that you are impoverished beyond all measure? That you bring no goodness to the table when it comes to salvation? There's not anything that we can think or do or say that will make us right with Jesus. But do you trust God to bring forth the root of Christ in your life? Do you trust Him to bring salvation when all hope is lost? There is still hope in Christ. And the final question then is, do people see the joy of the Lord is your strength? Do they see that the Lordship of Christ is something that gives you weightlessness, that gives you freedom, that gives you the ability to look at the death of loved ones and say, God is good and He will redeem His people. He will preserve a remnant. He will call them forth from the corners of the earth and death and sorrow and dying cannot keep God from accomplishing His purpose. We're not simply to accept or to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's to be our joy. It's to be our only hope, the thing by which we get up every morning and give praise to God. Because our Lordship has failed. We cannot fix our lives. We cannot order our steps. We cannot make our destiny. We are a people walking in darkness without the light of Christ. God is willing to be your Lord. What a joyous thing. He is willing to be Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know that joy? A joy beyond all hope, beyond all shadow of a doubt, that certainty is the Lord's. When people begin to see that joy, they will come and inquire of you, who are you? Who, who do you know? What's different about you that I don't understand? When they see that you can stomach all of the destruction of this world, and you can bear up because this is but a fleeting thing, and the weight of glory is so heavy because Christ is victorious. Because His glory cannot be surpassed in your life. They will ask, what must we do to be saved? You need only reply, repent 
and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. That's the gospel. That is your only hope, and that is my only hope. Let us believe in its power today and every day. Amen.